I had shared a photo on like Instagram or social media. There's like um, a comparison with like salt grain. Mm-hmm. So like it had a picture of salt and like uh, labeled heroin, and then and it was like half full, like okay. the the salt container, and then the other salt container was labeled fentanyl, and it probably had like twenty little crystals wow. of the salt mm-hmm. crystals or whatever you'd want to say. Um, yeah, and it just shows the difference, like how like how lethal it is like comparing it to heroin and what fentanyl is and so that's really the issue is when she's talking about it's man-made it's getting sprinkled on there you can get one little crystal more and unfortunately that's what these people are overdosing from Mm -hmm. everyone, it's Ninorta here welcoming you to episode 70 of the Assyrian Podcast. Many of us in the Assyrian world know someone or of someone who's battling drug addiction. Now, this isn't the sort of thing that's easy to talk about and it's also something that progressively gets worse if left unchecked. In this episode, we'll meet Dr. Ashurina Reem, who is an esteemed psychologist in the state of Arizona, and also Nicole Shamoon, who recently lost her brother Nick to drug addiction. Dr. Ashrina's expertise, along with Nicole's real-life experience of losing her brother, will help us as we wrestle with the issues of drug addiction in our Assyrian communities. Nicole has been an advocate for drug awareness and has spoken out openly about this topic. Both Ashrina and Nicole were speakers at the drug awareness panel discussion that happened in Phoenix back in January. And it was a very powerful and emotional day because Nicole's brother had passed away that same morning. Nicole will speak on her experience as a family member who was affected by drug addiction, and Ashrina gives us a psychological perspective and resources of how to help a loved one suffering from this addiction. Now, some of the medications and websites for resources may be specific to the U.S., but don't let that deter you from the greater conversation, which we can all learn something from. We hope this will open up the discussion with your loved ones and help those that are suffering from addiction. We dedicate this episode to Nick. May he rest in peace. Support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Caligaracos and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that's been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligaracos. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at injuryrights.com or at 847-982-9516. And now here is Dr. Ashurina Reem and Nicole Shamon. Ashurina and Nicole, thanks so much for joining us on the Assyrian Podcast and being open to discussing these pressing topics of addiction. First of all, I'd like to say to you, Nikki, that we're sorry for the loss of your brother, Nick. You've been a strong advocate for drug awareness and have spoken out openly on this topic, so thank you both for being here. And both of you ladies were speakers at the drug awareness panel discussion that happened here in Phoenix in January, and it was a very powerful and emotional day because, Nikki, your brother had passed away that same morning, but you still came to the panel and spoke on your experience as a family member who was affected by drug addiction. I think that spoke volumes to many of the attendees and helped many people suffering from from drug addiction. Ashurina, can you start off by giving us a medical definition of what addiction is? Yes. So, kind of how we think of addiction in as a psychologist, it's the activation of the the brain's reward system. So that's like what the high is. That's what makes people feel good. But we kind of cluster things in symptoms. So most providers refer to the APA's manual, so the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Diagnosis. But So there's a cluster of symptoms, so I don't know how important this is to a lot of people, but this is how we look at things. So it's taking the substance in larger amounts, wanting to cut down and an inability to do so, spending a lot of time getting the drug, using the drug, or recovering from the drug use, experiencing cravings and urges, um, not managing to do what you should be doing, despite the fact that you know that you should be doing it. So whether it's going to a job, it's doing something with your family, whatever it is that you, your, your current responsibilities may be, having an inability to do so, um, continuing to use even when it is causing problems. So even if you're having significant conflict with family, 
still using because you're having that inability to stop needing more of the substance to get the effect that you want so it's tolerance and um, development of withdrawal symptoms so once you try to stop or cut back you experience those symptoms of withdrawal which typically lead people to continue using because they're undesirable mm -hmm. so those are that's kind of how we see i mean not it's really different and how people experience addiction is so different but those are just like the symptoms that how we classify addiction or how we diagnose um, addiction in the um, in the world of psychology and medical providers use the same, mm -hmm. the and same criteria. A lot of people that can't relate to like the drug addiction or like smoking mm -hmm. um, or anything like that, but food addiction is mm -hmm. also very common. Absolutely. So if you think that you are trying to go on a fast for three days, we just had the Baotit uh, Nenwaya mm -hmm. happening. Mm -hmm. So if you're trying to refrain yourself from eating either meat or dairy products for three days, imagine mm -hmm. how difficult it is for somebody trying to not take a drug or not smoke a cigarette or whatever they're addicted to. Absolutely. It's like that. I mean, it's even as simple as our technology. Like oh when my we're gosh, like, yes. you know, let's not use that. Let me not take that with me. Like if you're gone an entire day without your phone and you're constantly like checking for it. So mm -hmm. yeah, so it's really difficult. And this is like a physiological dependence most of the time, depending on what, um, what someone's addicted to. But yes, absolutely. It's a mm -hmm. great point. How does addiction become a priority for that person that is using? I would say it's not that somebody has prioritized it like cognitively. It's not like they're like, man, I really hope to acquire an addiction or become addicted and I'm going to make this my number one priority. I think mm -hmm. it becomes a priority because you're physically dependent on it. So if we're thinking of somebody and they have like withdrawal symptoms, it has to become a priority. Otherwise, it's like how their livelihood. Yeah. If I don't use, I'm going to experience all of these negative, you know, symptoms. So I have to use. So they're they're constantly seeking that because there's undesirable um, symptoms that they're experiencing if they're not high. But also they're chasing a high. It becomes so euphoric that they like. It's like you have to chase it. So mm -hmm. it's not that um, somebody consciously or you know overtly says, I'm going to make this my priority. Just it's a part of the addiction process. Yeah. I have no control over that once they become addicted. Can you touch on the stigma of Assyrians and drug use or addiction and it being taboo in our community? Mm -hmm. Yes. I think with addiction, along with pretty much anything you can think of, like mental health, addiction, there's a lot of shame in our culture with that. And I think that shame, and I, I've really tried to conceptualize this and understand what the shame is about where this comes from and I recognize something just from hearing like the dialogue and hearing people talk more it's there's like this placing of blame people like to place blame in our culture you know who's responsible for this it's like something occurs and people want to place blame is it the family is it the parenting did somebody not do something that they were supposed to rather than trying to understand the actual addiction or help somebody or support them um, I think we do place blame I think the other thing that makes it even more taboo to talk about is that when you're experiencing it and when you're in the midst of it, the last thing you want to do is share this with somebody if you don't feel like they have your best, their best intentions and your best interest at, at heart. So I think it's hard to share when you feel like someone's going to use this information not to help me, but to share it with other people or to talk ill about me or my family. Mm -hmm. So I think there, there's, it's kind of multifaceted. It's the shame. I don't want to share this because that is like we do have that, you know, I want to protect my name, my culture, my family, and I don't want other people to talk about it. So there's that. So I think that should be a piece of encouragement for people, for the Assyrian community, because I think that we should be able to talk about these things openly. And I think that we should support one another. And I think this is something that I'm seeing more and more of. And I think we're all seeing more and more of it. But it should be like an encourager that, you know, we need to really stop talking ill about each other because we are a smaller community like in the grand scheme of things mm -hmm. and we need to be uplifting one another we need to be encouraging one another we need to be asking like you know how can i help you what do you need from me i know this must be hard i don't know what it's like you know even as an outsider if, if it's like i don't know what this experience is like but how can i be supportive of you and maybe even taking something like learning about it because it doesn't it's not going to stop at one family or the next this is this is larger than our community so i think we need to really be um more open to that 
Mm-hmm. And by having the panel discussions that we've had, the different events mm-hmm. on here and it happened in Chicago, there's a couple happening in California. So it's bringing that, that topic up and for, mm-hmm. for our people to discuss it and for parents to discuss it with their kids at home as well. I agree. Where does addiction start? So this is hard, and I think most people would, um, there's a lot of debate on where addiction starts. Um, my take on this is that addiction can start really anywhere. So you, thinking of how addiction starts, we see people who are young, go to college, get start drinking, and then it's a cascade of a number of events. You can see people that go to their physician, they have an injury, they um, break their arm, they get on a painkiller, an opiate, and they spiral out of control you can it just is a number of things people masking their emotions because they're depressed but what i will say is that we have these predispositions based on our genetics based on our family history for a lot of people there's a family history of an addictive behavior it might not be the same exact addiction that we're seeing but there's that addictive behavior so we think of it as and a lot of the psychologists in the community um, especially when at places i've worked previously we talk about it as like a loaded gun like you are, you have a loaded gun and then now you come in, you encounter whatever the addictive uh, substance is or behavior is and then it's like it's set off and now you've kind of activated that, mm-hmm. that addictive behavior. So I think we're predisposed to with genetics and with our family history and then it's kind of like what, who are we hanging out with and then we do talk about gateway drugs. It's a very real thing. Mm-hmm. We can say something as simple as, you know, someone's smoking marijuana and then next, you know, some people, we have really, you can go back and forth with that debate all day long. But yes, it can be for a number of people. And I think if you are um, kind of a vulnerable person to that, given the history, it can set off an addictive response. Mm -hmm. You mentioned marijuana being a gateway drug that, you know, everybody wants to kind of try out Mm -hmm. and, and see how it is and things like that. What about prescription pills? That's that's a another huge, mm-hmm. um, huge one that those can be found in in the home. I mean, if somebody gets injured and the doctor prescribes them a, a, a medication to mm-hmm. help them heal, they can just you know go to their to the bathroom or Absolutely. wherever they keep their pills, and it's there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I think gateway drugs like that's a that's a real thing, and I know it was kind of like a slogan that people used way back and. We, it's like kind of laughable to some people because people can say, you know, well, marijuana is natural and it has all this, they can give all the positives. So it just, I think it just base it goes back to who that person is and whether or not they have the addictive potential. Because realistically, I mean, if we are thinking about, there are a lot of people that use marijuana, I would say, uh, responsibly. If you're mm-hmm. prescribed medical marijuana, they can use it responsibly. They're using it for its purpose and there's no issue. But then... It's not like we are surveying, you know, children and teens and saying, you know, who is at risk here, you know, to use whatever it is, whatever the drug is. So, yeah, you're absolutely correct, though, with prescription medication and um, painkillers. Yes, they have a very high addictive potential, but if they are used appropriately, and I think quite a bit of the stuff that we're going to be discussing, a lot of the things that have an addictive potential have a purpose they serve a purpose i mean food serves a purpose right we are exposed to food all day long it's needed it can be medicinal or it can be um, overused and abused so everything i guess can be argued but the fact comes down to whether or not that person has that addictive potential and how they use it Mm -hmm. or um, what their family history is those kind of things that we've already discussed Mm -hmm. can we touch a little bit on laced drugs what what is that so a laced drug is something that has been compound, like compounded or mixed with something else. So the reason why, for example, drug dealers will, would lace a drug is because it becomes it's cheaper and it's stronger. It has a stronger, more euphoric effect. So it's kind of guaranteeing the return customer. So mm-hmm. when you lace a drug with fentanyl, for example, it's creating such a high that someone cannot replicate with a, an alternative drug with Maybe um, if they were using a prescription pain medication, they cannot replicate that high that way. So they, um, a drug dealer would lace a drug with something that potency, and they create a euphoric high, a very strong high at a cheaper 
amount of money so that way they can guarantee that so how I guess you would think of it as like a, as a drug seeker you're thinking well this is good stuff you know this is giving me a high that mm-hmm. my other drugs were not giving me so instead of thinking of it as you know what is this you know let me question what this is this is not typical it's it's kind of viewed as being like a, a better quality drug but realistically mm-hmm. it's not yeah so the the drug dealer's end game mm-hmm. is to pretty much make more money off of mm-hmm. the person that's purchasing the drug and keep a customer for life and they can i mean they even lace like marijuana as well right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it's very easy to kind of put anything in any any kind of drug that you're getting off the street absolutely so that drug dealer can be your your friend your buddy but you don't know where he or he or she got that drug Absolutely. from and then the chain goes down and down and down to see mm-hmm. and these are not chemists you know these are not like scientists and laboratories that are creating um these drugs so when they are putting together these drugs you have to think about this they're not they're not trained this doesn't come with a manual for them so they don't know what a lethal dose looks like of you know a fentanyl laced drug so when they're compounding these drugs they're putting them together they're manufacturing them they don't know what they're potentially sending out and so people users are not understanding that either so it's not like there's no science behind what they're doing yes they obviously do they do it unfortunately they do it well but Mm -hmm. it's not um it's not being monitored appropriately like how would you think of it being like in a medical laboratory you spoke about fentanyl Mm -hmm. what is that so fentanyl is a synthetic opioid um it's a painkiller that's it's used typically for like chronic severe pain patients and when you think about patients that use something like this it's like cancer patients and fentanyl typically or traditionally comes in like a patch form um but it's also used illegally it's also manufactured illegally like we've discussed previously so if you think about fentanyl it's a high potency drug this is 50 to 100 times more powerful than morphine itself so it creates this euphoric um, response that is now creating an, I guess you'd call it an epidemic, a opioid crisis that we keep hearing about across the country because it's creating this return customer, this person, the people that are becoming um, highly addicted to it, and there's an inability to stop because uh, you're chasing a high that cannot be replicated mm-hmm. otherwise. I remember at the panel discussion here in Phoenix, I think it was Dr. Charlotte that mm-hmm. mentioned. She's an anesthesiologist, mm-hmm. and she uses fentanyl, but like 0.01 micrograms yes. on her patients. So then in these drugs that are being sold, it's like, I don't even know how many milligrams they're putting in. I guess no one would know, yeah. right? That, but it's such a high dose of that. And it, uh, I think that other uh, panel, other panelists that were speaking, I think it was maybe Shalimam, but she had mentioned that I think that it was her that had mentioned it's something about the like the fentanyl dosage, but like that you couldn't be in the same similar room. It was either her or Hani. Oh, but speaking about it. Yeah, go ahead, Nikki. So um I had shared a photo on like Instagram or social media. There's like um, a comparison with like salt grain. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So like it had a picture of salt and like uh, labeled heroin and then and it was like half full. Like okay. the, the salt container and then the other salt container was labeled fentanyl and it probably had like 20 little oh, crystals wow. of the salt mm-hmm. crystals or whatever you'd want to say. Um, yeah. And it just shows the difference, like how, like how lethal it is, like comparing it to heroin and what fentanyl yeah. is. And so that's really the issue is when she's talking about it's man-made, it's getting sprinkled on there. You can get one little crystal more. And unfortunately, that's what these people are overdosing from. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And Ashrina, you mentioned that Shamiran had brought up that even when they do have like they do it like a drug raid or something like that, and they they see any sort of white powder, they cannot go in mm-hmm. because that's how strong fentanyl is. That right. even if you are in the room, uh, touch it, breathe it, whatever it is, that's how that's how strong it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's saying like they had to be wearing basically yeah, like a full a, on ma- uh, like yes. mask suit, everything. Mm-hmm. Well. When we found my brother um, and the police like came to basically take him away, when they found out like that's what he overdosed on, because I had told them, 
um, they moved us out of the room immediately and even the officers had to leave because it becomes like a not just because it's a crime scene but it, it is so dangerous like we couldn't touch anything in his room or anything near him because it was considered such a dangerous environment so yeah they had to like seal off the room until somebody came and cleaned it up oh, wow. so wow what are the warning signs that friends and family need to f look for in their loved ones the warning signs, I would say, are dependent on the drug or, or the substance that people are using. So obviously, if it's alcohol, it's going to be much different than, you know, what we're discussing, like fentanyl or opioids. And I think there's different physical and behavioral signs. But also, some people are really good at masking or hiding these signs. So it can be really tricky. And unless you are around this person quite frequently, it can be become really difficult. But um, I some of the physical signs that you can notice or maybe some changes in appetite maybe somebody is eating less or more so they might substantially um, be eating less or more so that's something to pay attention to they can obviously gain weight or lose weight depending on what they're eating or not eating um, sleep changes changes in speech grooming you might notice that somebody that once was really taking care of themselves is no longer taking care of themselves don't they don't have the desire to do that change in coordination or slurred speech, things like that. You, just dependent on what they are using, you're gonna notice a spectrum of changes in the, their physical behavior. But as far as how they relate to other people and those behavioral changes, you'll notice that they may not wanna be around. So they may not wanna be around family or friends. They might become secretive or suspicious. They could isolate. They might be getting into more trouble. You'll find that you might get into legal trouble they might have different hobbies now or different groups of friends that you didn't know before or they will run into financial problems or you'll notice that they might be might start to steal because you have to find a way to get the drug so they could be stealing money it could be getting in financial trouble borrowing money from people or selling belongings it could be a range of warning signs but these are just some of the like the physical like actual physical signs that you'll see on people and how they're changing but also how their behavior could be changing and i think it's really important to um, pay attention but also don't be too hard on yourself if you don't pick up on the signs because some people are very good and you, it'll take a long time before you pick up on some of the changes because you can you can attribute some of them to something else it can be really subtle and you'll say oh they're tired because they worked yeah they worked or they were up late you know so i think it's trying your best but knowing that it's not going to be a perfect process mm -hmm. nikki did you want to touch on that a little bit more yeah, um, I think, like for me, when I look back, I think it's easier to have a timeline because I have small children. Yeah. And so, like, my youngest is two and a half right now. And so for me, when it all really started, um, I would say I, I was nursing, actually, my youngest. And I remember I had cut nursing her because I was so stressed because I was onto my brother and like his behaviors like I knew he smoked he smoked marijuana he would talk about like how he liked it I wasn't very fond of it our family wasn't but it's like he's an adult what can you kind of do you know mm -hmm. and so but yeah I, I definitely remember like the timeline it's been it was probably like two years that I like knew something was going on but I wasn't really clear and I couldn't really pinpoint exactly what it was um, and so you just become like an investigator is like essentially what I became so I would literally grab my kids and whenever my brother would leave I would follow him wherever he would go and so I got to learn who he was hanging out with what he was doing like where he was spending his money and really like it kind of just like slowly took over my life and then I don't know like being wrapped in it during that time I feel like now that I'm not like emotionally tied to it and because he's not here like I get to think now and like I've just been processing like man, what, what could I have done differently? Or what signs could I have seen or, you know, address? Um, but when you're going through this and you have a family member that is addicted to these pills, I mean, it is awful. Like I was just telling somebody today, like I felt like I was losing myself slowly. Mm -hmm. And like, and I, I say like my brother was like killing me slowly and it wasn't him intentionally doing that. But like I lost like a big part of myself. Um, like chasing him while he was chasing his high. Yeah. Um, and so like my priorities changed. Like, 
my husband was no longer my priority and like thank god i had a husband that was so understanding because there would be weeks at a time where i would you know i would spend so much time with my brother because i just knew if i missed one night or one opportunity i was afraid that i was going to lose him essentially and so your priorities just change and when you are when you know that your somebody that you love is doing something that they shouldn't be like my priorities just changed like my husband wasn't my priority my kids were it was my brother everything live eat breathe was well, what can i do how am i going to keep him busy how can I help him? What can he help me with just to like keep him busy? So yeah, you just kind of lose yourself in the process. Mm-hmm. Um, the addiction took over you too. It totally took over me. And I used to like joke with my brother because we were very open and mm-hmm. he would share with me his struggles because he was in and out of rehab these last five months. And so I would joke with him and say, like, at least you're getting a high out of it where I'm like, it's just misery for me mm-hmm. because I wasn't benefiting. I mean, I just had more time with my brother but it wasn't pretty times all the time. Yeah. Like, I'm gonna be real. Like, I wish looking back now, the one thing that I wish I could change with my brother is I wish I was just even more loving than I was because a lot of times when he was getting high or when I would catch him, which was very often, I took it as an offense like to myself. Like, why are you doing this to me? Look at what I'm doing. And like, I would put that shame and guilt on him and it would crush him, literally crush him. Like, I could see how it would hurt him. But it's just because he needed, he needed to function and he couldn't live without it. And so it's unfortunate, but yeah, you have to basically like give your life to this person that you're trying to help. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you can't do that, which most people can't because they have to work and function and live, they need to seek help, whether it's rehab or somebody that's watching them on 24 hours a day. Because it's really that, like I was watching my brother 24 hours a day. And, like, everything in my home I had to change. Like, I had to hide things because it got to the point where he was stealing from us. I was hiding foil. I was hiding straws. Like, I was trying to learn his behaviors and patterns that would cause him to trigger. And so, yeah, you just become, like, an investigator. Mm-hmm. And it just sucks you in. <laughs> yeah. So the role that family and friends need to take is is a big step if they want to help their loved one try to beat this. I think it's different. I think it's different for every family and their dynamics and the people involved because like obviously Nikki took that approach and she shared like she was all all in she was invested she was Mm going to be committed to her brother's recovery she was trying she was obviously willing to stay up at night and there are a lot of people that are not willing to do those things so I think it's recognizing that every family is different and obviously I think the one thing that she said that was really important is to not take offense because it's really hard I think when someone is using a drug or they're addicted to something, you get really, it, you, you personalize it because you think, why would you be doing this to me? And realistically, they yeah. they don't want to be doing yeah. it to themselves, really. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to find a way out. They haven't figured it out. And they know that as a result, they are harming and hurting a lot of people, but they can't stop. So it's complete insanity to, for everybody involved. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things as a family member or a friend or a person that's connected with somebody that's addicted is to not try your best not to personalize it try to see from their perspective try to offer that like non-judgmental support if you can and if you really can't be supportive in that way like she said try to assist them in finding some supports like whether it's treatment um, a program whether it's a counselor whatever dependent on the situation mm-hmm. if you know yourself and you know that you can't be that kind of supportive person then you just gotta like try to allocate that elsewhere yeah. yeah, and I want to stress on the, like for me, I think God just wired me that way. Like I just am that way with anyone that knows me. I am ride or die. Like I am in it till the very end. And so for me personally, I knew my role had to be like I I needed to be with my brother every step of the way because I I had a fear. Like I knew that my brother was gonna die from this overdose. I just didn't. I wasn't ready for it, but I knew it was gonna happen. Because being with my brother, like, I just knew the struggles he had. And, like, it was going to be a very long, hard road for him. And so I don't want people to feel like, oh, just because they hear me talking, like, this is how you have to approach it. Like, I did, I, I did it that way because that's what God put in my heart. Like, I needed to be there for my brother. And I wouldn't have it any other way. But I don't want people to be discouraged. Like, oh, well, I don't do that for my family member. Or, oh, I'm not that way. Because, yeah, you probably aren't that way because God hasn't had you wired that way. But everybody has their strengths and weaknesses. Mm -hmm. 
But I will say, like, I do wish I would have just a little bit more understanding and just like more compassion with my brother because there were, there were not just bad times. There were a lot of good times with him, but it took a while for him to like feel like he could really trust me and tell me everything that he was going through. And so try not to make it like about you and taking it personal because it is, you will feel that way. Like there's just no way around it. Can we talk about prevention? Yeah, I think prevention is, it's hard because there's no, there's no one, one kind of approach fits all for preventing this and you can't guarantee it. So I think there are a few things that you can do and you can start off doing and this, because obviously addiction can be with any age group and any age range. But if we're talking about starting off in the family dynamic early on, I think it's really important to kind of get rid of the idea that kids should be seen and not heard. We want, and I think it's like, it's developing meaningful relationships. And I think I emphasize this a million times in the panel, but starting at a young age, we want to be supervising and monitoring our family members. Yes. But we also want to invest in the relationships, let them know that we are interested in the things that they're interested in, that we hear them, that we see them, that we understand that something's going on and to ask questions when we see something different and not just kind of be like, you're a child, you're over here and I'm over here. And Mm -hmm. like, we don't come together. So that's, this is like when I'm talking about like early life and family life, but we want to make sure that no matter what age group we're talking about, that somebody, they feel connected. So they feel like they can talk to somebody. They feel like they can be open with somebody. There is open dialogue. Um, but in our families, just early on, I would say like providing praise, noticing the good things, providing consistent discipline, just being around. And I think Nikki touched on this in the panel. It's like not just a mother's job to be present, but also a father's. And it's just so important to be present and be involved. I think, so I've done therapy for a number of years and I ask people every single time I interview them about their family dynamics. Mm -hmm. I hear one of a few things, but the number one thing people will remember, they don't remember anything they have. They don't remember if they grew up wealthy or poor. It's, they always come back and always come back to what they remember about their mom and their dad. It's always that, that's always the case in therapy. Um, how they felt their mom treated them, how they felt their father treated them. Were they present? Were they loving? Were they affectionate? Um, did they feel like they were hurt or did they feel like they were ignored? It's it, it just a lot of those things. And I think that's so important to start off as, as, at an early age, but not be discouraged if you haven't done it already. Mm-hmm. And knowing that it can happen at any age and you can repair relationships and you can make just an effort to repair those relationships. I think if we're talking prevention, obviously, I'm not going to give you like a list of like just steps because there isn't any but I think those are kind of like conceptual ways to do that I also think just from personal experience it's a lot of trial and error mm-hmm. like I had a lot of people when you're in the midst of like helping somebody that has this disease or an addiction a lot of people are quick to tell you like oh you should do it this way or mm-hmm. no you should kick them out or no you should do this I think you have to like trust like what God is telling you also and a lot of honestly while you're walking through this, it really stems from, like, your faith. Like, mm-hmm. you have to have, like, a higher power that you are calling on to help you get through this. Because I'm telling you, there was days where, like, I wasn't sleeping. It's like I was working on my kids all day. Then I'd put in the bed and then wake up. And then it was like I was with my brother. Then I would watch him go home. And then I'd wake up in the middle of the night. Like, I was living on just, like... Your autopilot. Yeah, it was just on autopilot. And I was just going from one moment to the next moment and so a lot of times like I know my faith and like I know God was like carrying me through those times because it, it just looked it, like when I look back it's just a blur I'm just like wow did this really happen like I've been questioning like is this happening did I really just go through this like did my brother like I've had these thoughts like was he here was that all a game mm-hmm. um, so I just think it's a lot of trial and error and you just have to kind of trust your gut on it like you can't take everyone's advice and maybe not talk to so many people because it does get confusing at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just have to just listen to like... I think that's a good point. Yeah, like it's just a lot of trial and error. There's no wrong way. There's no right way. Because if there was, there wouldn't be people dying from this. Yeah. So that's like personally what I've been just trying to like tell my parents, especially because I know they're 
we're all having a hard time. Like, there's no way to cope with this. Mm -hmm. And so I know, like, as parents especially, like, you want to put the blame on yourself. Like, oh, I should have done this differently. I should have done that differently. It is what it is. Like, this is how long God had my brother on this earth. And it's like, I think about those things, but I just try not to go there. Because what is it going to do or help? So I think you just have to just try different programs, try different output, you know, try different things, communication methods, um, but just being open mm -hmm. and understanding. Mm -hmm. I think you nailed it because people give you advice and they haven't walked that or they don't understand mm -hmm. it truly. So you have to kind of take that with a grain of salt, knowing that people may not really understand the depths of what you're experiencing, mm -hmm. but also knowing that, like you said, the trial and error, because what will work for one person that's trying yeah. to be in recovery might not work with the next person and they one person can swear by one program and, yeah. and not work with the rest so you're absolutely correct it's just so it is very different and that's the hard part I think about trying to identify like what would work mm -hmm. or what might not work mm -hmm. that is true and I would like to touch on that like as far as like I would say like maybe I wasn't loving enough with my brother even though I know I was but it's like I know the enemy puts that in my head like oh I didn't do enough I wasn't good enough but I mean I know like, my brother would tell me on a day-to-day -day basis these last couple of months, like, how much he loved me, how much he respected me. And I could just look at him, and I would just know, like, he appreciated that time and, like, that I did do enough. But it still doesn't make it easier, like, when you're going through it. And so I just want to encourage people, like, do as much as you can without, like, losing yourself in the process. Because it is hard, like, it's hard to, like, pick myself up. Mm -hmm. Like, after, because, like, I was just telling my mom today, like, I've had a really hard day today. And it finally hit me, I think. It's been, like, over a month. I just feel like maybe I didn't do enough. But I know that's not the case. Like, I know if my brother was sitting here in this room with me right now, he would tell me, like, no, Nikki, you did everything that you could. And so it's just trusting yourself and just, like, pushing, maybe not past certain boundaries where you are losing yourself in the process. Because it is. It's very hard to, like, distinguish, like, reality and then what somebody else is going through and if you're walking through them or walking through it with somebody. Because I don't understand, like, what my brother was going through. I, I couldn't. It was more on I would ask him and he would tell me. And so I had to just, like, comprehend, like, as much as I could. And I would ask him numerous times, like, okay, well, explain this. And so it is. It's just having that that dialogue with somebody and just really loving them no matter what they're doing even if it's like as bad as whatever they're doing yeah. just love them and just try to just be there for them because I guarantee you people that are doing these pills or they're like smoking and they're they're trying to cope with whatever it is that they're going through and so they just need love and attention and just somebody to hear them out mm -hmm. at the panel discussion Narcan was mentioned mm -hmm. can you tell us what that is yeah, so Narcan or Naloxone, it blocks opioid receptors temporarily. So it's an opioid antagonist. So you'll still need to be taken to the hospital, but what it can do, it'll basically temporarily revive somebody, or like I said previously, it'll um, block the opioid receptors. So uh, first responders carry it. You can purchase it at many um, pharmacies. They typically will administer it like at the pharmacy in a nasal spray form, but they also have Evzio, and it's a pre-filled auto-injectable that can also be purchased. So there's a number of different things that can be purchased at a pharmacy. You will not need a prescription, and they're sold at most pharmacies across um, the U.S., just dependent on your state. But um, yeah, like I said, it will temporarily stop that, that process while someone's being rushed, and dependent on how much was ingested it's like dependent on what that what they've ingested how much they've ingested that's like what the the reaction naloxone is administered via an injectable and that's one it's typically medically um, yeah. so you're you're drawing with like a syringe mm -hmm. the um the naloxone and administering it and there's also the naloxone in the nasal spray and evzio is a different uh, form because it's pre-filled and it's an auto-injectable so you don't have to mm -hmm. know how much to administer how much to drop in a syringe and that can be administered that way as well okay so if somebody is overdosing and they do have narcan they can administer it the nasal spray is the the easiest and safest way yeah. and it slows down that overdose 
until like they rush them to the emergency room and they'll kind of take it from there. Right. So if somebody, if you suspect that, and if you you should be carrying this, they say like you should carry this if you suspect that someone could potentially be overdosing. I mean, I don't think a lot of people are carrying it to be yeah. honest with you. And I think some people that are also um, prescribed, if they're being prescribed medication for severe pain, like if they are currently on like a number of like I don't know combination therapy for for pain medication, they could potentially be prescribed naloxone as well. Mm. To carry that, yes, if you suspect that somebody is overdosing, that's something to administer. Um, and it won't hurt them. Yeah, it won't hurt them, so. Okay, that's very good information to know. Can you touch on addiction not being a generational thing? I think we all think that it's teenagers, mm-hmm. yes. early 20s. Yes. I think, um, what we found, and I think this is, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, because obviously we observe what we see, like obviously in our, in our own community, but I think the opioid crisis or fentanyl, the this kind of addiction that we are seeing, yes, we may see that in more of our younger, the younger people in our community, in our community. I'm not saying this as like a, as the U.S. population, yeah. but we can't kind of ignore the fact that addiction is not occurring in all ages. I mean all demographics, anything that you can think of. So people in our own community, yes, I can see how we've kind of identified this as like younger people maybe. As far as like prescription medication, yes, that's typically seen in the older, like we can see that in the older population as well. That's, obviously people can be prescribed medication, like pain medication at any age, mm-hmm. and they can become addicted at any age. It has an addiction potential. It does something to people, right? It makes them feel relaxed or euphoric or whatever it does for that person. And they can want more. I think that can happen at any age. Your grandmother at whatever age can, you know, have an injury, sustain an injury, go to the doctor and become addicted to medication. It knows no age. It knows no creed, no gender, whatever it may be. But I can see how people can identify specific drugs and recognize that there is a demographic that they've identified for those things. Mm-hmm. It just might not be might not be talked about like obviously with fentanyl like we've been discussing we might not be seeing like our grandparents you know or older people discussing this or talking about this because they might not be exposed to it but that doesn't i say take away from the fact that they're addicted to other things like alcohol food um, gambling marijuana whatever it is that they're using i'm just saying there's a number of addictive behaviors of course um and addiction in and of itself does not know one particular uh, demographic it is ageless genderless Mm -hmm. creedless whatever you want to call it (laughs) so if someone is looking to seek help what do they need to do this is dependent on what is going on so if they are i mean if as a provider there are levels of care that we discuss but it's dependent on their level of addiction or the severity so if you are currently using um any kind of addictive substance that's created some tolerance and withdrawal symptoms, you're likely going to need to go to de- like a detox. So I think that's so the, the what to do portion is dependent on what's going on. Mm-hmm. So as far as treatment goes, if you're seeing a therapist or a counselor, they can really direct you and evaluate you to see what level of care you would need, or I guess what severity it is. So there, that's one step. If you're currently seeing somebody, they can really evaluate you and see what kind of treatment would potentially be needed. If you are like physiologically or physically dependent on a drug or a substance, detox is really an option. It's the probably the only option. option. The only option. The option. Um, so going to your, like your local hospital is something that a lot of people do. They will just go to their local um, ER to detox, and then the hospital can identify some of the the rehabilitation facilities that are local. But also, like if you go to like SAMHSA.gov, and I'm just gonna so SAMHSA is S-A-M-H-S-A.gov. We call it SAMHSA. I don't know if anybody else would call it that. Mm-hmm. But it's the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. So if you go to their website, you can find a treatment facility local to you. And there's also a helpline, and that's 1-800-662-HELP or 4357. So 1-800-662-4357. If you call their helpline or if you go to their website, you can locate um treatment facilities that are local to you Mm -hmm. and like i said if you are currently seeing a therapist which i think if you are experiencing any type of addictive behavior no matter how mild you think it is in nature it's always a good idea to see a uh, licensed provider 
because they can also direct you to what needs to happen. If, if someone were to come to me in my practice, and I've had many people come to me and say, I can handle this in the outpatient level of care, and after meeting with them a couple of times, I'm like, okay, listen, this is not something that we can handle because we are not able to cut back on your use. This is becoming a danger to you and everybody involved. Um, we, I start to plan out treatment and I can help get them admitted to a treatment facility. Mm-hmm. So it's really dependent on what they're using and the severity of their use. But those are just some of the options. I want to touch on... The, a lot of these hotlines that you can find online, there's like 24-hour support. Mm-hmm. I would recommend calling. Like if you're ashamed or don't know where to even begin, call these hotlines. They are so helpful because when I thought my brother was okay and things were like, you know, things were okay and I wasn't really sure if he was using or not using, I had just called one night because I was helpless and I had run out of people to call and like get a, like advice from. I had called one of the local hotlines um, and it was the lady like that I had spoke to. She just like reassured me like if you are, they go through this all the time. Like if you have a doubt that somebody is using, most likely they are. So it's just kind of mm-hmm. nice sometimes to hear an outside voice when you have those thoughts and those doubts. But yeah, the first step I would say is definitely get help. And if you can get your loved one or if it's you that's struggling into like a detox program or a rehabilitation to just do it. And just like suck up your pride because mm-hmm. really that's all it comes down to is yeah. like pride and like your reputation yeah i agree don't be ashamed of getting yeah, help do not be ashamed at all if you're looking for like a counselor in the outpatient setting and i guess i can kind of go over like the levels of care but if you're looking for a counselor in the outpatient setting um the designation we call it lisac l-i-s-a-c it's a licensed independent substance abuse counselor mm-hmm. when they have that designation after their name i mean obviously that means that they have they're certified and credentialed to work with individuals with addiction. So they that's their focus. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that no one else would be acceptable, but you have to think of it. If you had diabetes, you'd go to see an endocrinologist. You know, if you had issues with your heart, you'd go see your cardiologist. So to see somebody who specifically sees and treats these individuals would kind of be the best bet. So when I when I say levels of care, outpatient is level of care. So there's it's like a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Like at the most mild, basic, if you need to just check in with somebody once a week, you'd be outpatient. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is like, I'm, I mean, mild issues. Sometimes they can be somewhat moderate and they can kind of monitor you. And if it exceeds that, they'll they'll discuss going to a higher level of care. A, a step above outpatient care is what we call intensive outpatient. And that's where you're going somewhere typically three times a week for about three hours. So a lot of the local um, facilities, for example, there's like Banner, Thunderbird, they offer an outpatient, an IOP is what we call it. Um, and you'd go there, you would do group therapy. There's a lot of educational pieces and you're learning about yourself. You're learning about your issue and family can be involved. So that would be the step above. It'd be outpatient, intensive outpatient. Some programs have what we call partial hospitalization or a day program where someone will go for the entire day, like an entire work day four or five times a week mm-hmm. and um, they'll go to do that they'll be served their meals there they're in treatment but in the evening and on the weekends they're going home and then a step above that someone is at the most severe level and typically if somebody what from my own experience if somebody has been using opiates for quite some time or not even quite some time but if they are addicted to opiates they are going inpatient so inpatient is like a residential facility and those are sometimes used interchangeably but people will go there. That's where you're going to stay and live and you're housed there. And it's a very structured approach with minimal contact with the outside community. So you're going there. Your focus is treatment. There's treatment activities all day long, whether it's group therapy, individual therapy, family therapy. It's really intensive. And you're, they can range from some people do 21-day programs up to, you know, I've seen 18-month programs. So it's, it's really just dependent on the the treatment facility but and it's also based on the severity of someone's issues Mm -hmm. and family involvement is very important as well always not just going to these uh, facilities and and saying all right i did my part always i used to work in a residential treatment center and we had family week where uh, individuals their entire family was invited that we identified that would be important to come Mm -hmm. and there was intensive family therapy because think about it you, one person is kind of just one piece of the puzzle to the whole family dynamic. You send that person back into a dysfunctional family that has not been functioning appropriately for many years, then they are going to 
go back to that behavior because there's going to be so much stuff that's going on in that, that home environment that's going to set them off or trigger them to kind of return to their um, old behavior. So we always want to make sure that the entire dynamic of the family is under, they recognize what needs to happen, what needs to change, and that's kind of how we treat people. It's the whole family system. Mm-hmm. Ashreen and Nicole, thank you both for giving us a better insight into drug addiction and how we can help our loved ones. We've seen the drug awareness panels and events happening in more cities like Chicago, LA, Modesto, and so much more to come. So it's a, it's a start that we're talking about it and making people aware. But when you're not advocating for drug awareness, you have your own businesses and projects that you do, which I think are pretty cool to talk about here on the Assyrian Podcast. So, Asharina. Oh, my goodness. You provide tips on motherhood and mental health, empower women to live boldly, and share a lot of real talk and humor in your posts. What made you want to start on creating this Instagram page? So, personally, I'm a very... Contrary to popular belief, I'm funny. No, <laughs> very funny. So my career has always been very serious. Uh, mental health can be really serious. I've done therapy; it can be very serious. But one thing, almost all of my patients could tell you, if they were able to like come out and tell, like speak on the podcast, is that I've always used humor in therapy. Always, it doesn't matter how serious the issue. Uh, my goal is to yes, make people feel heard and help them through their issues, but also to make them laugh. So for me. That's like a hobby. I love to make people laugh. Like that is probably my life's goal is to just make them feel good. So it's, I've taken a lot of the things that I'm really passionate about. I'm passionate about being creative. I'm passionate about making people laugh and I'm passionate about mental health. So I thought, how can I do things that I am really interested in and kind of put it out there for people to see and then see what they think of it or if they do like it or if they don't like it. Hey. I'm still enjoying myself. <laughs> I'm still laughing away my days. But yeah, that's kind of how I created that. How has people's reactions been to your posts? Interesting. There are so many things that I'm like, wow, I'm blown away by the response I've gotten. Like even recently, I posted something recently and it's crazy what will go nuts, I guess, or viral or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. I'm shocked at some of it. And I really typically get a lot of positive feedback, so I can't say anything bad. If anything, it's built a sense of community where people will comment to me or say how they can relate or either thank me for making them laugh or thank me for the honesty in the post, but it's been good. Mm -hmm. Where do you get your ideas from? Because some of your posts are hilarious, (laughs) and I'm going to give one as an example, okay? So one post you did was a friend asking you if you're getting enough sleep. Oh, yes. And your response was, yeah, sometimes when I sneeze, I close my eyes. Yeah. Well, a lot of that's realistic. So when you become a mother, you don't know. What you might not know is that you're really never going to sleep again. Ever. Ever. And even if your kid's sleeping, like, you're not sleeping. But, no, realistically, I, my brain, and this is the reason why I think I started creating content for my Instagram is because my brain is nonstop. So... I have, and I'll show you and people obviously on the podcast can't see, but this is my post ideas. Like this is a notepad. So I create, this is all things. Wow. When I take Roman for a walk during the day, my brain is nonstop. It will not, and I will be like, oh my goodness, there's a great idea. And then I start typing it into my phone. I do that all day long and I just, something will come to my head. I'll pop into my head. It'll be from like a real moment in motherhood or a real moment in everyday life and I'm like I wonder if people can relate to this Mm -hmm. so I write it down on my phone and then I create it so creating it is a whole other ball game it's It's a whole other job yes on the weekends that's what we do so I create ideas I bring up four or five ideas and I talk with my husband about them on like a Friday night and we execute them on one day of the weekend in one chunk of time we take a couple hours and we execute all the pictures that I'm going to be posting for the week or the next two weeks. Nice. So yeah. That's pretty it's a, it's that's a interesting. Family. It's, it's a family event. <laughs> it's a family affair. You also share some Wednesday wisdom yes. every Wednesday. Let's pretend today is Wednesday. Okay. Yes. What, was, what wisdom would you share with us? So today's Wednesday wisdom. I think my Wednesday wisdom that I've been trying to tell myself is... And this is like a real thing because I think there's so much doubt. So for me personally, and I think this is my own way, like this is kind of directed toward myself, is that I need to believe in myself. But no matter 
what's going on or how much doubt that you have to pursue your passion because that's been a big thing for me. There's things that I'm passionate about and I think that I can really derail my own like my own thoughts and my, myself because I, I will doubt something. Mm-hmm. I will start with one thought and that seed of doubt will go haywire and then I'll think I shouldn't be doing this or people probably think this is silly or am I ever really going to be good at whatever it is, fill in the blank. And that will kind of derail my entire plan. So it's pursue your passion no matter what. No matter who's supporting you, no matter who's not supporting you, to be your number one advocate and be your best supporter. Because people are not going to always be supporting you. And I think you've got to kind of find it in yourself to be like, you know what, I'm going to do what I want to do regardless. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to make it work. So that's kind of where I'm at. So that's my Wednesday wisdom to everybody and then to myself. That's some good Wednesday wisdom. And Nikki, you have your own business. Would you be mine designs? Uh, you create. Oh, yeah, it's very clever. So that's wood and then yeah, wood so yeah. as in W O O D and then U, the letter U and B, and then mine, <laughs> M I N E. Thanks, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> so many of our listeners have seen your work at the Assyrian National Convention um, that happened here in Phoenix where you had the Shlama mat and mm-hmm. the Assyrian mm-hmm. alphabet and many other different designs at the booth that you had there. What made you want to start this business? I don't know if it was what I think it was more circumstantial. So like I like Ashrina. I mean that's why we're friends. We're just creative people. Um, and my friends have labeled me like the queen of side hustle. Oh yeah. Because oh. my brain too, like it just doesn't turn off. Like, and I just don't stop working. It's like I'm home, and I wanted something where I could be with my kids because. Like, being a mother was, like, something I always wanted to do, and I just knew, like, right when I had kids that I just didn't want to leave my kids, and that was just something, like, that I knew I didn't want, Mm -hmm. and so for months, I was going back and forth, like, thinking, what can I do? How can I make some money to, to help, like, you know, our financial situation or, like, help my husband, and so I tried a lot of avenues of businesses. Like, I've been... I'm kind of like an entrepreneur at heart. Like, I just like to try things, and I get bored, and I'll try something else, and so... Thanksgiving of last year, I posted a sign that I made and it just like kind of hit off like on Facebook. And so, yeah, it's just been really fun. Nice. What's been your inspiration for the different designs? Um, I, like I said, I like to create. I love custom pieces. So a lot of my pieces are, everything I've made is like been something that somebody's wanted. And so... Yeah, it's just, I love being creative. It's not, it's a nice outlet, like, the end of the day for me. Mm -hmm. Like, I do most of my work late at night when I probably should be sleeping, but that's just, like, where I kind of find myself. It's, like, on my own when I'm creating. Nice. What's been your favorite design that you've done? I'm really into the This Is Us, the show, and so I've made a lot of pieces with the This Is Us and personalized them. I would say, like, the Shnama mat has probably been, like, my number one seller. I've sold so many of those mats. It's, like... It's unbearable, like how many mats I've sold, which thank God, like I'm not complaining. And then the alphabet, like that's been my favorite because I have a place above our sliding door, we have like a really big sliding door, and I've looked at that spot for almost a year and a half now, and I kept thinking like, what am I going to put there? Yeah, that's definitely been my favorite piece of the Assyrian letters. Yeah. Because it just looks really cool, and it's just a great conversation starter. Yeah. My sister bought that for her kids' nursery, so oh, yeah, it's a so cool. great. Uh, yeah, it's just great. really cool. It's educational. I mean, and it's honestly like personally, I've always wanted to like learn how to like. I can speak Assyrian, and it's gotten much better. Like especially because I have a close relationship with my grandma, but it's just kind of helped me. Like I can look at the alphabet now, and I'm like, oh, I know what these letters are, yeah. or like the sounds. What's been uh, your reaction to the support Assyrians have provided? Can I be real? Yeah. Just because I've had other businesses, I never, I've never like depended on Assyrians like to like support because I mean you just can't do that as a business person. You can't focus on like one demographic or True. one party or. So I've actually been very shocked because like I've had a lot of other businesses and people have been supportive. I'm not going to say that they haven't, but the Assyrian community has really stepped up. Like the Assyrian convention. Like, it essentially, like, blew up. Like, I was overwhelmed with, like, the love and support. And it's just something to be proud of. Like, it's really cool, like, to, like, express, you know, mm-hmm. a, a part of, like, who I am in, like, a creative way. And so it's been really, really cool, honestly. Yeah, the Syrian Science, they've just been, they've been a hit. That's awesome. Especially in Chicago. Like, I've sold, I think, over 20 of those 7-foot 
signs, the mm-hmm. alphabet ones, and it's just like it boggles my mind. My living room is full of all these signs, and they're like <laughs> going to all these places. I just, I, I don't know. They're everywhere. Yeah, it's just really cool. Like I actually went to Ashrina's house, her mom's house, yesterday, and like her doormat said Shnab on it, and it's just really cool. Like, my <laughs> friend, it was my youngest, and I was like, hey, that's Mama's sign, and she had no idea. But I was like, that's Mama's sign right there. So it's just really cool. It's something to be proud of. hope you enjoyed listening to this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast. You can always check out past and present episodes and find out more about our awesome team at www.assyrianpodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on any device that you are listening on and share it with your family and friends. Thank you all so much for tuning in and supporting us each and every week. We will see you all next Tuesday with a brand new episode.